Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Egan. Today would have been the 93rd birthday of Anne Frank, and so in tonight's show we're remembering her life and her story, and also marking the 75th anniversary of the publication of her iconic diary. We'll explore the part the diary played in 20th century history, some of the controversies surrounding it, and its crucial role in shaping our understanding of the Holocaust. And then later in the show, we'll hear some personal histories of the Second World War collected by the staff at NUI Galway or Ulskul Nagolova University of Galway, as it will soon be known. And there are some remarkable insights into how different families were impacted by the conflict. Last week, we discussed the 70-year reign of Queen Elizabeth II and debated her legacy. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We'd also love to hear your thoughts and ideas about the show. Just send us a text 53106, text cost 30 cents, or email us at talkinghistory at newstalk.com. We begin tonight's show by marking the anniversary of the birth of Anne Frank, as well as the 75th anniversary of the publication of her diary. In 1947, the diary of Anne Frank, who had died in a Nazi concentration camp two years earlier, was published and it became an international success, both critically and popularly acclaimed. In her new book, The Diary That Changed the World, the remarkable story of Otto Frank and the diary of Anne Frank, Karen Bartlett explores how the book found itself at the centre of a multi-million pound industry, with competing foundations, cultural critics and former friends and relatives fighting for the right to control it. The book is published in hardback by Biteback Publishing and I'm delighted to welcome Karen to the show tonight. Karen, you're very welcome. Thanks, it's great to talk to you. Can you begin maybe by reminding us about Anne Frank her life, her story on this, the 93rd anniversary of her birth. Yeah, I mean, I think people uh, almost tend to forget that at the centre of this is is a young girl um, who led an extraordinary life, but a really tragic life that was cut short. Um, so, I mean, Anne came from um, a very well-to-do German family. Uh, she moved to Amsterdam when she was young because um, the Nazis had come to power in Germany and... Uh, they were a Jewish family. They were at risk of losing everything. And, you know, her parents understood that they, they had to leave. Um, so she moved to Amsterdam. She sort of remade her life in Amsterdam, grew up there, spoke Dutch, um, and was this really sort of, you know, spirited, um, temperamental, talented, uh, quite, quite unique girl, um, and always sort of probably destined to be a writer. But, you know, who knew uh, what fate had in store and who knew that when her father Otto uh, gave her that blank diary um, for her to sort of write down her experiences in, um, that the family would have to go into hiding from the Nazis, that they would live in the attic of her father's uh, warehouse on Prince and Grout Street for, for nearly two years. Um, and in that, in that time, she would write the diary um, of those experiences and that that diary would then sort of go on after her death to to change the world and sort of captivate the imagination of millions and millions of people. 
there has always been a, a debate and some controversy about how the family was discovered. And even earlier this year, we saw uh, uh, claims that they had discovered who had who had uh, sold them out. And then that led to counterclaims and, and much controversy. Do we know exactly how they were discovered? We don't know how exactly they were discovered or, or more to the point, we, we know how they were discovered, but we don't know who betrayed them. Um, and people have made quite, you know, convincing cases for, for different characters to have been the person that betrayed them. But what we do know is that an awful lot of people actually knew that they were in hiding. Um, so there was kind of an immediate circle of people who were helping them. But there were also people who were kind of coming in and out of, of the, the downstairs building, which was still being used as a business premises. And there were also all sorts of people outside in Amsterdam who were you know, um, selling food and and selling things, and were probably you know had probably kind of heard on the grapevine that that this Jewish family was in hiding um, in the annex. So it really could have been any of a, a number of people. And as I say, you know, pretty convincing cases have been made for for several people, but as yet, no one's really discovered that one smoking gun piece of evidence that that would say this is definitely the person. Only Otto Frank, uh, the father of Anne Frank, survived the concentration camp. How did Anne die and how did the rest of her family die? Well, the family were um, were betrayed. They were discovered. They were taken away first to um, a transit camp in Holland. Um, and then they were sent on that sort of terrible, terrible journey that millions of people had to endure, particularly Jewish people, to Auschwitz. When they were at Auschwitz, they were split up between men and, and women, which is, is what happened to people there. Um, and so, you know, the last that was the last time that Otto saw his, his first wife and, and his two children um, on the ramp at, at Auschwitz. Um, and you can just sort of imagine what a terrible moment that is to sort of see people for what you know might very well be the last time. Um, so Anne and her sister and her mum... Uh, stayed at Auschwitz um, and her mum would eventually die at Auschwitz after Anne and her sister had had been sent from Auschwitz to another concentration camp back in Germany at Bergen-Belsen. And really at Belsen they were kind of um, alone for the first time together. Um, And, you know, they were just still really young girls. Um, And, you know, they they weren't murdered in the gas chambers, but they were, they succumbed to um, disease. Um, They became delirious. They became very ill. Of course, they were very malnourished. Um, First, Margot died, and then we believe that, that Anne died. And the tragic story and the story of of them in hiding probably would have been forgotten except for uh, that diary that Anne Frank had kept. Can you tell us about the diary and and the story of how Otto Frank uh, went about getting it published? That's right. I mean, Otto came back to Amsterdam after the war. It was a long journey back from from Auschwitz. And he, he came back in the hope that he might find out that the rest of his family was still alive. But soon after he got back to Amsterdam, he discovered first that his wife had died, and then he discovered that um, both Anne and Margot had uh, died in the concentration camps too. And he was just a man who was completely shattered. I mean, he had, you know, literally nothing left to live for. Uh, but Miep Gies, who had uh, been his great friend and helper before the war and then had helped the family so much uh, when they were in hiding, uh, presented him with this miracle, which was Anne's diary. Uh, he 
he didn't know that it had survived and had, uh, Meep had kind of swept it up off the floor of the annex um, when the Gestapo had invaded and had kept it for that whole time in the war, believing and hoping that uh, that Anne might come back and claim it herself. But once she realised that Anne was dead, she, she decided to give it to Otto. Um, and so we can kind of imagine... And, you know, a lot of people have described that moment when Otto started to read these words, you know, his his daughter's words when everything else had been lost. He literally didn't even have any other possessions, you know, left behind. Um, and, of course, it was very emotional and he started to cry. And, you know, at first he could even sort of like barely read the words that she'd written. Uh, but over the course of a few weeks, he started to to think, you know, this is something remarkable. This is not just... An ordinary child's diary. This is not just something for my family. Maybe this is a message that everybody in the world should read. Uh, what Anne has written, um, and so he started on this this mission um, to to first publish the diary, and then to to sort of to spread it to to countries around the world, and that really was his his mission for for the rest of his entire life. Um, but what I also so think is you know remarkable is that you know, it wasn't just his mission. Um, but, you know, as he sort of showed it to different people, a lot of people, you know, didn't think it should be published, didn't think it was worthy of publication. Um, but, you know, there were sort of a few people kind of, you know, dotted around here and there who actually read it and thought, actually, this is an amazing diary, this really should be published. Uh, and at first, he, he, you know, hooked up with some old friends who were quite sort of left wing socialist writers and editors in Amsterdam after the war who who read it and thought you know this is a message about about fascism people must understand that you know the Nazis and the fascists you know can never win in Europe and we should publish the book for this reason and that was really the reason why it got its first publication in Holland and then after that of course there's sort of a huge story about what happened next and um, how it sort of took off as a huge phenomenon in other countries too. And that is a remarkable part of your book. The, there's a whole chapter on how it takes America by storm. There's the, the plays and in plays in, in theatre and film and so on. But, and also then w- wider as well across the world in Japan and so on that there's something about the experiences of Anne Frank. Maybe it's the fact that it's a teenage girl and you have her her sometimes profound insights, sometimes naivety, sometimes just personal uh insights of her daily life that it does strike a chord with so many people around the world it strikes a chord with people and for for many different reasons um and i think it's sort of it's hard for us to go back in time and think how unusual this book was when it was first published and you know anne is writing about very personal things like her personal feelings as an adolescent her family how she feels about her mother and you know at the time you know people really didn't, you know, expose themselves like that and write books like that, especially not teenagers. So for that reason, it was completely unique. And, you know, teenagers all over the world and young people immediately responded to that. Um, but I think, as you say, it's that combination of her her naivety, um, her insights, you know, it sort of, it tapped into a lot of, of different feelings and things that were going on in different places of the world. And, you know, as you say, I mean, it, it took off, you know, hugely in Japan, which was a big surprise to to Otto and other people when it was published there. Um, and for, for all sorts of sort of different reasons there. 
So, you know, it's meant a lot of different things to different people in the world. And it seems to, to, as you say, to sort of continue to strike a chord with people quite unexpectedly sort of decades later. You also say that in countries that are experiencing genocide and oppression, and uh, it, it very much it, it has a, a readership there because they're experiencing uh, the same kinds of thing. Yes. Um, I mean, certainly in Cambodia, uh, in Rwanda, in other countries who've had that experience, not only does it sort of strike a chord, but it's actually sort of used as a, a tool. So, I mean, in, in Cambodia, almost, you know, all young Cambodian people have encountered the diary of Anne Frank. Um, I mean, it's a really sort of useful and meaningful way for them to think about the ex- their own experiences um, and what happened and how you sort of, how you can move on from those experiences. And in Rwanda too, and although those countries, you know, have experienced terrible genocides and obviously the Holocaust was a terrible genocide, you know, they don't necessarily have a lot in common. And it's not necessarily uh, true that people have taken Anne Frank to those countries and thought, oh, this will be immediately a success. Um, it might not be, uh, but actually it does seem to have that kind of underlying message that, that really means something in those countries. Um, but amazingly, you know, it means something and it seems to mean something in a lot of other countries, too, that haven't uh, been through that process of genocide. And I think one of the fascinating things that I learned in this book was that, you know, for a new generation of of young people who are questioning their identity more, um, this is a, a still a book that means something because Anne questioned her identity so much and she didn't want to be put into two traditional pigeonholes. So even today, when the world is so different to how it was in, you know, 1944, 1945, there's still young people who look to Anne and can understand how she felt and thought, I feel that way too. The book has had its critics and we'll talk about some of the controversies in a minute, but even people who uh had 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 family members who perished in the Holocaust. Some of them were uncomfortable with the story because they didn't feel that it maybe was representative of of their experiences. Uh, not everyone was able. Very few went into hiding, for example, or uh, it wasn't capturing the the horrors of the concentration camps. So so even some Jewish people were uncomfortable with it. Yes, quite a lot of of Jewish people were uncomfortable with it. Firstly, the people who knew Otto uh, in Amsterdam and uh, in the the Dutch community felt that it was sort of wrong almost at the beginning for him to publish something that was so personal um, and sort of reveal such personal things about his family and and also about the other families that were living in hiding with the Franks. You know, they weren't in there on their own. Um, Then as sort of the fame of the book progressed, um, people were uncomfortable with as you say, with Anne, sort of the sense of almost victimhood in the book that, um, that you know, Jewish people had kind of suffered this, this terrible situation and were sort of were victims rather than people who could, you know, later, you know, become much more sort of active in fighting for their own rights. And, yeah, I mean, people were uncomfortable with the fact that it was such a financial success. Um and, you know, it seemed to be making such a tremendous amount of money. Um, and also, I think the fact that to be such a success around the world, um, you know, it lost some of its kind of unique, you know, the Jewish nature of the story. Um, 
So, you know, people who are not Jewish who identify with that book in all sorts of different places for different reasons don't always necessarily understand a lot about the the Jewish history of the Holocaust. And there are people who would like that to be sort of emphasised much more strongly. And also the fact that it's about the that period before she's captured. So it's not capturing uh, just the horrors of the concentration camp and, uh, and, and, and the misery and terror and trauma of that period. Yes. I mean, that, that is such a crucial point because, of course, you know, Anne has become like an, an icon for the Holocaust. And yet, you know, the diary of Anne Frank itself never mentions the concentration camps because it finished. She she was captured and finished writing it uh, before she went to a concentration camp. And so, you know, Hollywood and America in particular loved that that part of the diary where she said, you know, I still believe that people are good at heart. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have said, well, if Anne had continued to write and survived the concentration camps, you know, they're pretty sure she wouldn't have still believed that people were good at heart at the end of that really terrible, torturous, awful experience. Um, So, you know, it's used as a sort of a symbol of the Holocaust, but actually the real horror of the Holocaust isn't actually in that book. And we'll take a quick break now and we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Karen, your own study explores the controversies then and the attempts to discredit the book, the attempts to to claim that uh, Anne Frank didn't write it, it was written by Otto or by others, that uh, bits were added in in Biro and so on. And uh, you have David Irving, uh, you know, since since he made the allegation in 1977, disgraced himself, but uh, the KKK getting involved and so on. But there are these uh, concerted efforts to try and say this isn't true, this isn't a real story, and that uh, this this the life of Anne Frank and the death of Anne Frank is being manipulated by people for their own purposes. Yeah, I mean it's it's a really curious and, and sort of awful part of the story. I mean. Um, it really starts with a man called Mayer Levin, um, who was a, um, a writer himself in America and then later in Israel. And, you know, he began this kind of lifelong feud with Otto um, because he had promoted the book and he had wanted to be the person who wrote the play. And he lost out on that and he was very bitter. And, you know, he he took Otto to court over that. And, um he was very strong in his claims that, you know, Otto had kind of manipulated the diary and he'd taken out, uh, you know, different parts and edited himself. And sort of ironically, because of this court case, that kind of opened then the door to a whole generation of uh, people who were Holocaust deniers and sort of Nazi sympathizers themselves to then make allegations uh, in the press about the book and say that, you know, it was well known that um, Otto had written part of it and even suggesting that May 11 had written part of it, which was completely untrue. Um, and Otto then sort of had to begin this kind of lifelong series of court cases against Holocaust deniers to prove that, you know, the diary was genuine and Anne had written it. And as you say, it had to be, um, you know, the handwriting was analysed and the, the, the date of the ink was analysed. And, you know, it was really another kind of torturous, terrible process for him. But, you know, the, all of the sort of the questions that had been then raised about the diary just sort of fueled the kind of 
each new generation of Holocaust deniers to to take it on and say, you know, there's all these questions about the diary of Anne Frank. And actually, if we can't believe in that, then maybe we shouldn't believe in the whole story of the Holocaust. So it was very, very important in terms of the the story of kind of Holocaust denial. And very often when you do have a, a diary being published, uh, and, and I think an example you give in the book is of Leo Tolstoy's diary, uh, there, there are always uh, changes made or or it's an edited version of it. So you don't publish everything. There are certain bits that are maybe tightened up so that it reads better or that you're not. So that there are these different editions and versions of the diary where you have those editorial decisions made. Yeah, I mean, I think what people sometimes don't understand is that Anne wrote different versions of the diary herself. Um, I mean, I think she wrote two or three sort of different versions of the same material that she was editing and thinking about herself for for wanting to to publish it. Um, And then she kind of, you know, she ran out of pages in the diary and she had to start adding kind of loose sheets of paper and she wrote fiction stories as well. So Otto didn't kind of receive a, um, you know, one cohesive diary um, that he could then just translate or, um, you know, correct and put into publication. He received this whole sort of mass of uh, diaries and um, and letters and stories. And, you know, it was his job first and then editor's jobs to sort of piece that together into a kind of a manuscript that you could then publish. Do you think the neo-Nazis and the the racists and the Holocaust deniers felt threatened by the book? That here we have a, a diary which shows the fear of people uh, on the run from the Nazis. It shows the horrors uh, before they get captured. And then because we know how the story ends and how tragically it ends for, for Anne dying as a teenager, that that, that horror then helps us helps us realise or helps expose the evil at the heart of what they're trying to defend. Oh, absolutely. And I think it was Otto himself who said, you know, one one person's story, one girl's human story can kind of pierce people's hearts and, you know, make them change their minds in the way that, you know, a million statistics could never do. Um, so, you know, getting that kind of intimate glimpse into Anne as a person and her family as real people, and, you know, no one can read it but think these are people like us. Um, I mean, that that affects how you think and feel about things in a way that, you know, knowing the terrible statistics about the Holocaust or reading about the terrible conditions in a concentration camp, you know, can't do. Um, so I think it is that sort of human connection of, you know, here are people, here's a family, here's a girl who's just like me. You mentioned money earlier and the amounts of money that that were being made by the the success of the book. And I had already that marked in my notes. I had written money and circled it because you see that in all walks of life that you can have family and friends who get on so well. And then as soon as money enters the equation, lifelong friendships can be broken. And there is another tragedy in this story in the way you do have people falling out and even some of the tensions that you describe between the Anne Frank House and the Anne Frank Foundation. Uh, Otto Frank marries again and there are tensions there about where the money goes after he dies that there suddenly is is an an, an extra element of, of conflict created by the success of the diary. 
almost from the moment that Otto returns to Amsterdam, he has to, you know, contend with uh, people who think that they should have had some kind of financial share in the diary. Um, and, you know, we first see some very sort of odd correspondence with the woman who was married to uh, Fritz Pfeffer, the dentist who was who was in the attic with them, who uh, sees the success and thinks, you know, maybe I should be getting some kind of payment for that. And then as it progressed, as you say, um, there was there was a report by um, someone who knew Otto well that after he died, Meep Geese thought sort of she should have had a, a bigger share in his estate. Um, and Otto, you know, the diary was enormously successful um, and it brought in a lot of money. Um, and Otto himself was, you know, was absolutely beyond reproach in terms of money. I mean, he saw it as Anne's money. He wasn't interested personally in uh, making money or being rich. He just saw that as being money that he could use to uh, put towards good causes, which is which is what he did. Um, but that didn't stop other people from wanting to share in that money or feeling that they should have had a part in it. Um, and of course, May 11. Um, I mean, he part of his sort of huge court case against Otto was thinking, you know, I wanted the fame of having written that play. But I think part of it was also that he felt that he could have, you know, become financially very successful from it. Um, so there's really that sort of the tragedy of, you know, the, the success that, that the, the diary brought. Um, and since Otto's death, there's been this, you know, series of competing uh, court cases and disputes between different people who are in, involved in in Anne Frank world about who owns the diary, uh, who owns the rights to the diary. Uh, the Anne Frank Foundation in Switzerland are the organisation that own the diary and own the rights to the diary. Um, but other people have wanted to to have copies of their material and have wanted to run their own projects. And so, yeah, it's been a kind of a constant source of of dispute about who profits from Anne and, and who represents Anne, who speaks for Anne, uh, who is kind of the voice of Anne Frank in the world if if Otto is is not here anymore to to be her champion. I thought it was interesting as well the way you show how in some of the Holocaust museums they, they have the story of Anne, but they also then uh, have also other stories of so that of of victims in concentration camps, so that you're getting the wider story, so that it's it's a way of of recognizing that the the story of Anne Frank is is significant and important, but it's not the only story or the only experience, and that it's contextualized in this broader way. Yes, I mean, I think it's really important that I think more recently people have realized that they need to, you know, embed Anne a bit more in the Jewish experience of the war and to tell more of that story and as we were talking about earlier, more of the story of the Holocaust um, and to explain to people that um, Anne's story was not typical, that as we were saying, most people could not go into hiding. You know, most people were just deported to concentration camps and murdered immediately. Um, so, you know, Anne's story is is pretty unique and while it touches our lives and is really important because it's it's still you know, reaching people and making the story of, of what happened to her very relevant. You know, it's important that we understand more of the sort of the context of that as well. You know, I mean, so many people, for example, go to the Anne Frank house in, in Amsterdam um, who who sort of line up outside and they don't know Anne's story. They don't know that she was German. You know, some of them even remarkably don't even realize that she was Jewish. So, 
you know, what happens to them when they, they go inside the Anne Frank house and how they tell that story um, is really sort of crucial in making sure that, you know, Anne isn't just a kind of a meaningless symbol, but it's actually, you know, meaningful of the experiences that she had and that we can come away from it understanding what happened in the Holocaust. Your book is called The Diary That Changed the World. How do you feel it has changed the world? Is it because in after its publication in 1947, it it changed how people viewed the Holocaust and uh, viewed what had happened in... Because, of course, it wasn't old history then. It was very much living and recent history. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the fact that, you know, it's it's pretty much the most read book of the 20th century and continues to be so widely read that it's it's taught in schools across the world from the United States to Japan that it's used as a sort of um for reconciliation and um understanding for holocaust victims in other places where there's been genocide i mean all of that is amazing um you know the fact that it was used as a sort of a propaganda tool both by the americans and by uh, the communists uh, in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union during the Cold War, you know, that it was this sort of Cold War porn almost between the two is kind of astonishing that, you know, this all came out of this this girl's diary. Um, and I think it's, you know, where do we stand here in the, 20, uh, the 21st century so many years later after the end of the Cold War and why is it still relevant? And you know, the fact that it's still speaking to teenagers about their identity and it's still one of the enduring symbols of the Holocaust. Um, perhaps, you know, the enduring one alongside, you know, Auschwitz as kind of an enduring memorials um, just shows you sort of what a remarkable book this is. And finally then, Karen, it's also, I think, you know, it, it brings home the the, the, the the horror, the tragedy, the sadness of all this, that today's Sunday, the 12th of June, you know, she was born on the 12th of June, 1929. And if she had lived, she'd be 93 today. And, you know, there are many people born uh, in 1929 still enjoying life today. And uh, she might well be still alive if only for uh, what had happened. And uh, we think of her as a figure from the far and distant past, but she's not. You know, I completely agree with you about that. And I think it's one of the the things that struck me so much when I was writing the book. And it was something that I didn't think about for a long time. Because, you know, even to me, and I'm sure to many other people, she seems like a symbol from something that happened so long ago. And, you know, not something that didn't happen in my lifetime. Um, And then realising, as you say, that actually you know, had that not happened, Anne could well be alive and with us today and that many people who were Anne's contemporaries and people who knew Anne are still alive and with us today. Um, And that's the sort of, that's the tragedy of the story. That's what makes it so sad. And I'm sure she would have actually, if she had lived, gone on to be, you know, a really well-known and great writer. Um, But it also sort of, you know, ties us back to those events um, too in a way I think because it makes us realise that um, this is not sort of ancient history but actually you know something very strongly that you know there are those people who are alive today and um, we have not moved so very far um, you know beyond those events of the Holocaust and you know what we see with sort of the war in the Ukraine and um, having a new war in Europe is that kind of you know, the threats of war and the sort of the tragedies that war play out in people's lives is actually 
still very much with us today. Very good. Well, Karen, thanks so much for joining us today on the anniversary of the birth of Anne Frank and also to mark the 75th anniversary of the publication of her diary. Uh, Thanks a million, Karen. Thanks very much. Karen's book is called The Diary That Changed the World, The Remarkable Story of Otto Frank and the Diary of Anne Frank. It's published in hardback by Biteback Publishing. It comes highly recommended. And we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History with Patrick Gagan. On News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book provides 13 accounts of individual experiences of World War II from across Europe, and it sees contributors describe their recent ancestors' experiences, ranging from an RAF pilot captured in Yugoslavia to a Spanish communist in the French resistance, to two young Jewish girls caught in the siege of Leningrad. The book is called Family Histories of World War II, Survivors and Descendants. It's published uh, by Bloomsbury Academic. The editors and authors indeed are Roisin Healy and Garode Barry. And Roisin and Garode, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. Roisin, can I begin with you on the concept behind the book? Because I think it's very interesting, very innovative, the way you've gone to fellow staff members at NUI Galway and got them to share their own family histories of the Second World War. And it really shows the diversity of the experiences, but also just how international the community uh, there in Galway is. That's right. Um, There were several impetuses to the book. I suppose one was my own experience of having lived in Germany, I'm a historian of Germany and I've been privileged enough to hear lots of personal stories from Germans whom I've got to know over the years. And Garrod, my co-editor, has also heard his fair share from friends in, in France and Belgium. And we found these war experiences fascinating, if often painful. And we were conscious that lots of Europeans, including those working at NUI Galway, would have interesting stories of their own. NUI Galway is indeed very international and Galway, as Galway is itself. 25% of our population is foreign-born here in Galway. So it was just really a hunch that I had that doing a call out to members of staff at NUI Goy would yield lots of interesting accounts and that that's exactly what happened. And we, in fact, had a model in NUI Goy already for collecting family, family histories insofar as colleagues had already put together a volume based on family stories about uh, the Irish Revolutionary Period, to which I had contributed an essay in that my grandfather had played a minor role in the, in the Easter Rising and we was also coming up to the 75th anniversary of the end of the war in 2020. So we thought this was a good moment to reach out and try to collect stories about the war. And Garod, the accounts are wonderfully contextualised in the book. But I think what really comes across is that all of the stories, all of the accounts are powerful, but some are poignant, some are painful, uh, some are, 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 there's a sense of pride with the, with the, the, the relatives talking about it. But it, it can be very different experiences uh, depending on the events that they're describing. Absolutely, Patrick. And I mean, that's why we divided the 13 stories in the book into two sections, one called Combatants in Uniform and the other called Civilians in Wartime, um, because we wanted to show that variety of experience. We by no means neglect the experience of combatants. We feature soldiers from the British, Italian and American armies and indeed a Royal Navy uh, sailor. Uh, But we also wanted to show what their family life was like and also what it was like for civilians, because one of the things we do is explore the transmission of war memory after the war. And if I might just share one example, Patrick, to illustrate the point, uh, the chapter by Irina Ruppo, a lecturer in English at NUI Galway, 
Uh, Irina grew up in the old Soviet Union at its end and in Israel in her youth. And in her chapter, she talks about her two Russian grandmothers, uh, Luisa and Raisa Greenberg, who were in fact sisters. And uh, those sisters, whom she knew as older women, uh, lived through part of the Nazi siege of Leningrad, uh, which itself lasted for 900 days and in which an estimated one and a half million souls perished. And really, after witnessing the deaths from malnutrition of their grandmother uh, in Leningrad, the sisters escaped the city in 1942 to face an arduous trek by train to Siberia. And it was really the self-sacrifice of their mother and her refusal to leave one of the girls who was quite sick behind that saved the family. And Irina learned the story, as she tells us in the chapter, both from listening to her grandmothers and from reading and, and rereading the memoir typed up by her granny Raisa in Israel in the 1990s. And, and what's very interesting is that an everyday commodity like food carried memories. Irina came to understand better why her grandparents made such a fuss out of serving simple meals of potatoes, precisely because as girls, they had literally to live on crumbs in Leningrad in 1942. And in fact, Irina is very candid about how trauma endured in the family, resurfacing in premature deaths uh, into the 1990s and beyond. And she, she says that that was something that was common in a lot of Russian families. Roisin, that's very interesting there, what Karola is saying about trauma. And you see that in, in a number of the accounts, including the one of Sylvie Mosse, who talks about uh, how her maternal grandparents met as Ukrainian slave labourers in wartime Germany and, uh, you know, a huge amount of trauma and pain in that account. That's right. It's probably one of the most tragic accounts that we have in the book. Sylvie Mosse is a lecturer in French in NY Galway, but her maternal family is from uh, from the Ukraine. And both her grandmother and grandfather were seized as slave laborers in Ukraine in 1942 and brought separately to the Reich. And Garrod was talking there about, about the, the, the scarcity of food um, that people endured in, in, in places like Leningrad. Uh, the, the experience of these slave laborers was terrible, too. At one point, she had to resort to eating scraps intended for dogs. She got so little food from her German employer. And, of course, these were part of a, of a huge group of uh, slave laborers, 2.2 million from Ukraine alone, who were forced to serve in Germany, working either on farms or, or in factories. And what was particularly tragic, I think, in their case was that both of them had already been married and had families in Ukraine, which they had to abandon as a result of the war. And we learn a lot about uh, Sylvie's grandmother, uh, Alexandra. She left a six-year-old daughter in, in Ukraine. She, in fact, already lost a, a, a daughter to childhood disease and her, and her husband. She was, she was widowed. And she uh, endured the war in Germany. She met uh, Basil, this, this other Ukrainian there, in the ultimate act of love. He, he gave her food from his own rations, which were pretty minimal too. And they married uh, at the end of the war and had a child in a DP camp who was Sylvie's mother, Anna. And in fact, she uh, got her birth cert for the first time as a result of Sylvie Mosse's research for the book. But the story doesn't end there in the sense that they then uh, found themselves forced to, to, to migrate further westwards to Belgium. They were afraid that if they returned to Ukraine after the war, that they would be prosecuted as collaborators. It sounds quite ridiculous um, because obviously they had been seized against their will to go to the Reich. Uh, but that didn't matter in the Stalinist system. People uh, like them were indeed subject to prosecution. So they moved on to Belgium. 
Sylvie's grandmother tried valiantly to make contact with her with her daughter back in Ukraine and to try to visit her. And the Sylvie's authorities repeatedly turned down those requests until 1972, so 30 years after she had last seen her daughter. They had a, a very joyful reunion, um, but that was the one and only time that she was allowed to visit her uh, in Ukraine. So that really shows, I suppose, how long-lasting the effects of the war were going over several decades and several generations. And Grode, you know, again, the huge mixture of stories, some you see the the resilience, you see uh, the humour, you see the strength of character. In some cases, you see uh, uncomfortable, in some cases, very horrible truths being revealed by by their researches into their family past, including uh, one professor of German who discovered that uh, his maternal grandfather was a was a huge Nazi. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, I, in the case of our uh, of our colleague and the uh, professor of German Hans Walter Schmidt-Hanisse, he talks about how in the uh, in the nineteen seventies he, as a, a young German, didn't want to. He preferred to do uh, civilian service rather than military service. He grew up uh, in post-war Germany, thinking of his family as, as victims of the war because his mother's family had been part of the ethnic German community in the Sudetenland in. Czechoslovakia. And they were, of course, expelled from there at the end of the war. So he grew up hearing his mother talking about that experience and being impoverished at the end of the war and indeed going around begging for food uh, because of the the, the difficulties that that, that she and, and, and many others like her endured. There were about 10 million of these in Germany after the war. But then uh, he he realized that uh, the, the past was a little bit murkier. Her father had been a Nazi functionary in Bavaria, had worked there during the war, and seemed to be quite unrepentant. And this came out gradually uh, over the course of the, the post-war period, but particularly at the moment where Hans Walter himself, a committed pacifist, decided against going into military service, but took the civilian service option instead. This is in 1976. And his grandfather was outraged because he saw this as an insult to the, the German military tradition. And so Hans Walter finishes his essay with a kind of an appeal to the next generation, hoping that uh, they will repudiate that kind of legacy that comes from their, from their own family. I suppose matching the kind of the, the national official repudiation of the Nazi past that we've seen in Germany since '45. Garoud, it's a wonderfully inventive collection. I think the idea behind it was superb and I think it, it's brilliantly executed by you and Roisin. We also get some important insights into the Irish experience of World War II as well. Indeed, Patrick. I mean, in, in all of this, of course, we're indebted to other recent scholarships such as that of uh, Stephen O'Connor and Irish officers in the Irish Army, which is cited by the contributors to our book. Uh, who write on this. About five of the stories have um, Irish flavours, if you include, as you should, uh, that of an Irish-American and indeed a Royal Navy sailor who married a woman from the Connemara Gaeltacht. But we have three stories uh, involving people who were born in Ireland, uh, three men and one woman. Uh, The men all joined the British Armed Services, the uh, woman 
joined as an ambulance driver uh, in Scotland and served Britain's war effort uh, in that way. Uh, in fact, the RAF pilot uh, was Cecil McCall. The ambulance driver was uh, his future wife, Patricia. They had known one another before the war in Cork uh, and were wed in '45. Uh, but I suppose the other story uh, that I would just like to tease the audience with is that of our colleague in the physics department, uh, Patricia Scully. And her story shows something of the complications of Irish service in the British um, Army. Uh, her late father, John Scully, was in her youth an NHS doctor in England, but very proud both of his Irishness, but also of having been in the Black Watch Regiment, having joined from medical school at Edinburgh. And uh, coming from a family of linguists, he was actually put into the Army Education Corps and had the interesting job of teaching Polish exiled soldiers in Scotland during the war and translating for German POWs. Uh, and yet uh, he had a mother, Nance, who retired ultimately back to Kerry, who was a very staunch Irish uh, Republican, had been a common man woman before she had immigrated to England from having been on the defeated side in our civil war. Uh, and, you know, in later life, when they would come uh, to Ireland, he would have to cover up the fact from her that he was still going out on weekends helping uh, with the Territorial Army uh, in Britain. Uh, this would have been in the 1970s, uh, at a time when he might have been a quote-unquote legitimate target for the provisional IRA. So all of this shows something of the complexity of the Irish-British relationship. And of course, he found times, as indeed did uh, Kira Boylan's uh, uh, grandfather, who was a dentist in the British Army, he found here and there, while he was well received as an Irishman and allowed to feed his Irishness in the army, there were always one or two occasions when he had to stand up uh, against snideness uh, and prejudice. Okay, well, Roisin Garod, thanks so much for joining us tonight to talk to us about this volume. I think it sets a benchmark for the kinds of work that can be done uh, in this field. And I think there's probably more studies like this that could be done because you show the richness and the diversity of the different experiences. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Roisin. Thanks a million, Grow. The book is called okay. Family Histories of World War II, Survivors and Descendants, published by Bloomsbury Academic. The editors are Roisin Healy and Grode Barry. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and Peter Malloy on sound. Well, some more great shows coming up in the weeks ahead, including one on the Irish Civil War. So join us next week and in the weeks ahead on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night.